Amen. If you would remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series, Journey to God in the Songs of Ascent. We are in Psalm 129. Hear the word of the Lord in Psalm 129. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come now to your holy word. We pray, Father, that you would fill us, that you would feed us, that you would satisfy our souls with nourishment that only your word can provide. I pray, Father, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would supernaturally provide for every need in this room by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. It was the evening of March 8th, 1971. It was at Madison Square Garden in New York City where two undefeated boxers battled for the heavyweight championship of the world. The night was dubbed the fight of the century. It was between Smoke and Joe Frazier and Float Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Bee, Muhammad Ali. Arguably, it's the greatest boxing match in history. The fight went 15 long rounds. Spoiler alert, although it's been 50 years, so um, it's not on me. After 15 rounds, the, the judges declared Frazier the winner, although Ali would go on to win the next two of their three matches. But, but in that fight of the century... Ali was strong the first round. He was tired by round six. By round 11, Frazier had Ali right where he wanted him. Muhammad Ali was noticeably weak. His back was against the ropes. His his hands were up. and, And when Ali lowered his hands, Frazier, as he was used to do, he would left hook, right across Ali's face, and and Ali fell down. 
His knees hit the canvas. His gloves hit the canvas. He didn't knock him out, but he knocked him down. Ali stumbled, and he got back up. To, much, uh, to many people's surprise, he, he went the distance. He finished round 11 and went all the way the full 15 rounds. He went the distance. He finished the match. You see, he, he might have been knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. He was down, but not knocked out. How about you? In this fight we call the Christian life, as you consider your life tonight, as you think about this season, do you feel like the world is throwing you punches? Do you feel like your back is against the ropes and your hands are up tonight? Maybe you're knocked down this evening. Maybe, to use the language of our text, you feel afflicted. Well, if that's you tonight, this is a word in season. And I pray that this is a sweet word to you tonight because we are reminded in our passage that on our journey to God, that on this road to heavenly Jerusalem, on this path that we call the Christian life, we are going to experience opposition from others. We experience affliction. We will get knocked down. But as Paul writes in one translation of 2 Corinthians 4, 9, we are knocked down, but we are never knocked out. Because of God's righteousness, because of God's justice, because of God's faithfulness, you as a follower of Jesus Christ have a hope and a confidence. You may experience affliction, frustration, moral indignation, but because of the righteousness of God, because He is on the throne, we can experience perseverance. We can experience endurance. We can experience resilience. That's what our passage is after tonight. Our psalm tonight wants to teach us that resilient faith relies on the righteousness of God. Resilient faith relies on the righteousness of God. Resilience, it's the capacity to recover quickly from difficulty. Resilience, it's like one of those blow-up clown things. It's like this tall and it's weighted on the bottom. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, it's this tall and as a kid you, you punch it and it comes back and then it jumps right back forward. And then you hit it again and it keeps coming back. Now that's, that's not an endorsement uh, of that. I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that you get your kid those things. Um, doesn't make sense to me why it's always a clown either. Um, but that's a, that's a picture of resilience. After every blow, they get back up. And if we are going to go the distance in the Christian life, 
If you and I are going to stay joyful in intense affliction, if you're going to go 15 rounds with Satan, 15 rounds with the world, 15 rounds with sin, you need to rely on the righteousness of God. That's how we get through. That's resilient faith. So our passage shows this to us in three sections. The affliction of God's people in verses 1 to 3. God's righteousness in verse 4. And our prayerful response in verses 5 to 8. First, the affliction of God's people. We see this in verses 1 to 3. The psalmist writes, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Psalm 129, scholars tell us, was almost certainly an exilic psalm. It was either written during or just after the exile of God's people. It was a song that that was led by a worship leader in corporate worship. The, The worship leader would give the first line and then encourage God's people to respond. It was a call and response song. And the song begins with the personal affliction of God's people. It begins with their personal pain. The people sing, greatly, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. There might be a footnote in your Bible that says greatly or often. Often have they afflicted me from my youth. The point is clear. God's people know very well. They know very well affliction. Look how they describe their pain in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. It's the image of a plow, a big piece of metal, heavy and pointed, which was connected by cords to an ox who pulled the plow to break up the ground for sowing seeds. It's, It's a striking image. And the people of God say, you want to know what my pain and affliction feels like? It's like someone driving a tractor across my back. It's like someone plowing long furrows across my body. Perhaps the psalmist is referring to the lashes that the Israelites experienced in slavery. Maybe it's referring to the mistreatment of Israelites as farmhands. But certainly, it is an image that communicates that whatever their affliction, their pain was long. It was frequent. It was difficult. And it was at the hand of another. God's people know pain. God's people know oppression. Since Israel was just a newborn nation, from their youth they knew affliction. All the way back in Egypt, God's people were forced into slavery. Exodus chapter 1 verse 11 puts it this way, they were afflicted with heavy burdens, forced to make bricks with no straw. God's people knew affliction. When God's people entered and lived in the promised land, they experienced great opposition from the Canaanites, from the Amalekites. Sure, they had their victories, but they were constantly pressured and opposed by the Philistines, by the the Midianites. 
by the Ammonites. God's people knew affliction. And then the Assyrians came and took God's people into exile, destroying their cities. And a couple hundred years later, the Babylonians came. They sacked and destroyed Jerusalem, killing the young men and making the rest slaves and exiles in Babylon. God's people knew affliction. Unless you forget Ezra and Nehemiah, they sought to rebuild the temple, and when they did, they experienced opposition and oppression and affliction as they sought to serve the Lord. God's people know affliction. In a room this size, I can only imagine the affliction that's experienced in this room. We could go around chair by chair by chair and share about the ways that we have been afflicted, the ways that we have been persecuted, the ways that we have experienced opposition. Maybe you've lost friends for being a Christian. Maybe you've lost loved ones, strained relationships because you're a Christian. Maybe you've lost relationships with loved ones or or you've lost your job because you wouldn't do that thing that they wanted you to do because you were a Christ follower. Maybe you've been slandered. Maybe people that you love have said mean and hurtful comments to you and it was often. And, And maybe that's your life right now, that there's a strained relationship that is just on your heart. In a room this size, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be surprised to know that your life has been threatened, either here or on the mission field, because, because you're a Christian, because you are a Christ follower. And that's just pain and affliction from being a Christian. That's not to mention the sin that seems to mock you or the physical suffering that Satan uses to make you doubt God's goodness or the sleepless nights or the prodigal child that Satan accuses you and says, it's your fault. It's not your fault. God's people know affliction. And it is good and right as God's people to remember to sometimes mourn and to recall our pain, to lament. We as a pastoral staff get a window into your affliction when we pray for you every week. Prayer requests that are submitted, we as a pastoral staff pray. And sometimes all I can do is just weep at some of the stuff that you all have to go through. Some of your life is just hard And it's good and right for us to mourn. But as we mourn, as we recall our affliction, as we recall our pain, there's a beautiful word in the middle of verse 2. And if you're struggling tonight, if your faith is weak, if you are in the middle of affliction right now, you need to take this beautiful little word in verse 2. You need to hide it in your heart. It's the word yet. That beautiful little word yet. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth. Yet. 
yet they have not prevailed against me. When we are walking on the road of affliction, we must preach to our heart and to our mind, yet. We experience pain, yet. My enemies have not prevailed against me. In one breath, we mourn our affliction and lament our pain. And in the next breath, we consider and recall our hope. That's the key to resilient faith. We're down on our knees, fists against the canvas, but we're not out. Knocked down, yet never knocked out. The affliction of God's people is not their greatest reality. The affliction that you're experiencing is not your greatest reality. Though it's painful, it bows to the Lord who preserves and protects us. Amen? The enemy will not prevail against God's people. Why? Because of the righteousness of God. Because God is righteous. You can see that right there in your Bibles in verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Remember the image of an enemy plowing the backs of God's people. The plow is connected to cords, by cords, to an ox. And the Lord has cut that cord. He's the cord-cutting Lord. It's likely that the Israelites are heading back from exile to their homeland of Israel. And as this psalm is being written, they are recalling the many ways in their history that the Lord has released and redeemed them from oppression, redeemed from the Egyptians, redeemed from the Canaanites, redeemed from the Assyrians and Babylonians. Our God is a liberator. He sets us free. Our God is righteous. He always does what is right. I remember watching my little brother play in a basketball game. He was in middle school. I was in high school. And he went up for a layup and someone on the other team elbowed him. And the ref was right there. And he didn't say anything. He didn't do it. So my brother's and I'm, I'm angry. I, I'm, I'm upset. I'm upset that, that this happened because the ref is supposed to do what's right. The, the ref is supposed to call the foul. I'm sure many of us have been in an experience where we're watching our, our favorite team and there's a foul and no, no foul. What, what happens when the referee doesn't call the foul. We, we get upset. We get frustrated. We expect the referee to see everything and to do what is right. And when they don't, or when worse, when our bosses don't, when our judges don't do what's right, when our politicians don't do what's right, we feel injustice. We get upset. We have moral indignation. You don't have to be a Christian to get upset at injustice, to know that this world is full of injustice. We all long for justice. We all 
want righteousness on this earth. We get upset when things don't go right, when wicked people afflict righteous people, when bad things are done to good people, when we turn a blind eye to evil. But not God. God is not like that. God is not just the referee of this world. He is the ruler of this world. And everything that he does is right. Everything that he does is just. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. He sees all things and knows all things. And one day he will come and make everything right. Do you believe that? Are you relying on that? Are you relying on the righteousness of God? Because that is our confidence. That is our hope. That's how we can endure affliction here in this world because God is righteous. Some of us might say, yes, amen to our passage. Yes, Richard, righteousness is an attribute of God. J.I. Packer taught me that. Wayne Grudem taught me that. And it's an intellectual notion. It's something that you mentally ascribe to, but it isn't an experienced hope. And our passage is trying to show us in all of its raw pain and affliction that the righteousness of God is not just a doctrine that we believe or a religious phrase that we say as Christians. The righteousness of God is a place of profound refuge in the midst of affliction. In the midst of pain, in the midst of loss, we can run to the righteousness of God, to God who is righteous and find refuge. When I'm criticized, I will rely on the righteousness of God. When I'm wronged, I will rely on the righteousness of God. When I'm threatened, I will rely on the righteousness of God. Too often, we rely on lesser things to deliver us from affliction. Vote. By all means, vote. But the White House isn't going to save us from our affliction. We're not ultimately relying on the government to deliver us from our worldly affliction and opposition. We're relying on the Lord. Go to work. Make money. That's great. But ultimately, our money isn't going to save us from our affliction. As Christians, our ultimate dependence, our ultimate reliance, our final hope as God's people is in the deliverance and the vindication of God, the righteous judge. He will save us. He will deliver us. He's the judge. He's going to take care of his people. The Lord is righteous, verse 4. He has cut the cords of the wicked. He's cut the cords of the wicked. Richard, have you ever lived a day on planet Earth? You see, Richard, this is the issue with you Christians. You all have your heads buried in the sand. 
How has God cut the cords of the wicked? Well, I'm glad you asked. We live in a fallen world. In this fallen world, God does not promise us freedom from pain or affliction or opposition. In fact, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says that in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. The good news of the gospel is that God looked down on our fallen, wicked, afflicted world. And to cut the cords of the wicked, he came down. And he was afflicted. He was cut off. The Roman soldiers who killed him made long their furrows on his back. They plowed nails in his hands and in his feet. And he didn't do anything wrong. Now that's injustice. He didn't protect himself. But as he hung there on the cross, he relied on the righteousness of God to vindicate him. And not only that, on the cross, he broke the power. He cut the cords of evil. He cut the power of sin and death and the devil. And he freed us. How is it that we can rely on God's righteousness with resilient faith? It's because Christ first did it for you. He was afflicted and cut off for you. That's how God has cut the cords of the wicked, by the death and resurrection of his son. And now we await a day when he returns to finally, once and for all, for all, cut the cords of all wickedness forever. We tend to think about wicked, or at least I do, tend to think about wicked as being out there. You know, it's the corporations, and it's the murderers, and it's the corrupt politicians. But, but the Bible said that, yes, there's wickedness out there, but there's also wickedness in here, amen? There's wickedness in my own heart. The fact of the matter is we all deserve to be cut off from God. If you're a non-Christian here today and you want justice, I'm really glad that you do. So do I. But justice says that we deserve death for our crimes against God. You want to start with justice, you have to look at yourself. We have to look at ourselves and say, I deserve death because of my sins against God. No one is righteous. No, not one. So if we really want justice in this world, let's, let's start with ourselves. If you want to have righteousness, you first need to be made right with the Lord of righteousness. If you're not a Christian here tonight, your greatest need is to be made right with God. And Christ secured your protective righteousness with God because Christ received our punishment. And now in Christ we wait and we trust with resilient faith we rely on the righteousness of God that he will vindicate us on the final day when Christ returns. Because that's who he is. The Lord Jesus is righteous and he has cut the cords of the wicked and we rely and wait on that righteousness now. But what does that look like? What does that look like now? 
What is the Christian's response to affliction from our enemies? Verse five and eight give five to eight give us a template, a model, a sketch of what relying on the righteousness of God looks like in prayer. You can see it in verses five to eight. They say, "May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops." which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Our psalm is an imprecatory psalm, the only one in the, song of ascent, the songs of ascents. The psalmist is asking in an imprecatory psalm that God would bring justice on his enemies to judge those who are opposing God and His purposes on earth. If I were to summarize the psalmist's prayer, it's this. Lord, don't let them succeed. Lord, don't let them succeed. Let me show you. Verse 5 says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and and be turned backward. In an honor-shame culture, if you fail to accomplish a uh, a military mission... There would be shame upon the the whole people. So the psalmist just basically says, Lord, let them be turned backward. Let them not succeed. Lord, don't let them succeed. Verses 6 and 7 uses an agricultural metaphor. It says, let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. The roofs in Israel were made of dirt. And so sometimes seeds would, would scatter and that they would germinate on top of the roofs and then the sun would, would beat against that, that little seed and it would die quickly. And so there would be nothing for the reaper. There would be no harvest to collect. A sheaf is just a bundle of wheat. So there would be no sheaves to bind because there would be no harvest. They would be fruitless. The psalmist is praying that his enemies would be fruitless. That that even though it's germinated, even though this wickedness has begun, Lord God, would it end quickly? In other words, Lord, don't let them succeed. Verse 8 says, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. One of the signs of blessing in the Old Testament is a fruitful harvest. So the psalmist is praying that unlike the blessing that is experienced by God's people, As we looked at last week in Psalm 128, the blessing of the Lord, Lord, may their work not be blessed. Let them hear no words of blessing from others. In other words, Lord, don't let them succeed. Don't let them succeed in public. So verses 5 to 8, I would argue, is, is actually a prayer not primarily of anger, not primarily of vengeance, but it's a prayer primarily of faith. The psalmist doesn't take matters into his own hands. The psalmist leaves his enemies in the hands of God and entrusts them to God's justice, to God's righteousness. And he does that in prayer, praying, Lord, don't let them succeed. When we are wronged or afflicted, this prayer instructs us to take our anger of being wronged 
to take our personal injustices and our grievances to the Lord and to commit them to him in prayer. We take those feelings of being wrong and say, Lord, don't let them succeed. Lead us far from temptation. Deliver us from evil as Jesus taught us to pray. Even Paul in Romans 12 reminds us that God has said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32 there. It is good and right for us as Christians to pray against the success of God's enemies and against their flourishing. It's good to pray that those who kill Christians around the world would not succeed. It's good to pray that those who want to stop the proclamation of the gospel around the world would not succeed. It's also good to pray for our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and pray for the peace of our nation and pray for our government so that the gospel and the purposes of God might flourish. What what do we tend to do in our flesh when we are wronged, when when we are afflicted? We we want to, well, at least I want to, direct my anger at the person who wronged me. That's what I want to do. Our psalm is telling us that that the key to a mature, resilient, go-the-distance faith, individually but also corporately, is not to lash out, not to repay wrong for wrong, but instead to direct our pain and our prayers to God who will take care of it, to God who is righteous. I guess my time's up. It's only when we bring our anger and hurt and frustration and affliction to the Lord in prayer that we then have room in our hearts to pray for the person who wronged us, to forgive them in the name of the Lord Jesus. We need the imprecatory psalms. We need Psalm 129 to show us how to mourn and how to long for justice and to commit our injustices to the Lord. What is your response when someone hurts you? We all have responses to affliction. We all have responses to pain. Some of us fight. Some of us are like Muhammad Ali. We put our our guns up and we, we go on the offense. And we are active to the injustice that we experience. Some of us are less fight people and more flight people. When we get wronged, we we push the feelings down. Just keep pushing them down. And maybe we respond a little bit more passively when people wrong us. Some do a little of both. But what do you do when you become afflicted, when when someone else opposes you? And here's the question of our text. Do you pray? Do you commit it to the Lord? Do you pray that the Lord would not let this affliction succeed? Because this is the model of resilient faith that that relies on the righteousness of God by committing our injustices to him in prayer. I'll close with this. Many know the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon went through many, uh, many and much affliction in his life. He had painful gout, he had depression, and near the end of his life he was 
involved in a controversy that he was uh, defending the authority of the Bible. It's called the downgrade controversy. And through that, he was slandered by many people at the time. And during this opposition, he wrote a little devotional called The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. Maybe you've read from this little collection of devotionals. And in the introduction, he, he writes these words, which I just offer as an example of what a mature faith looks like that relies on the Lord and his righteousness and affliction. Here's what he writes in the introduction, these beautiful words. He says this, I commenced these daily portions, meaning these daily devotionals, when I was waiting in the surf of controversy. Since then, I have been cast into waters to swim in, which, but for God's upholding hand, would have proved waters to drown in. I have endured tribulation from many flails. Sharp bodily pain succeeded mental depression, and this was accompanied both by bereavement and affliction in the person of one dear as life. He's talking about his wife, Susanna. The waters rolled in continually, wave upon wave. I do not mention this to exact sympathy, but simply to let the reader see that I am no dry land sailor. I have traversed those oceans, which are not Pacific, full many a time. I know the roll of the billows and the rush of the winds. Never were the promises of Jehovah so promised to me at this hour. Some of them I never understood till now. I had not reached the date at which they matured, for I was not myself mature enough to perceive their meaning. Never were the promises of Jehovah so precious to me as at this hour. In the midst of affliction, those with mature, resilient faith, they can see, they can rely on, and even enjoy the sweetness of God and His righteousness. Let me pray that God would create that in our own hearts and lives. Lord God, we, we pray, Father, that you would help us to trust you. Lord God, I don't know what every person is going through. You do. I pray, Lord God, that you would give your child faith tonight to trust you, that you have a purpose it's a good purpose. It's a blessing. Would you give them confidence in your righteousness that you rule and reign and you will make all things right, Lord? Would you help us to go to you in prayer when we are wronged? Would we go to, go to you in prayer, commit it to you? Pray, Lord God, that you would intervene, that you would act. Lord God, would you make us a people who completely rely on your goodness, on your grace, on your righteousness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.